from Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 7 through to 22. This can be found in your Pew Bibles on page 769. 769. <clears throat> Jeremiah 14, 7 to 22. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. For we have often rebelled, we have sinned against you. You who are the hope of Israel, its saviour in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveller who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. This is what the Lord says about his people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine and plague. But I said, Alas, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, You will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and famine. And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There'll be no one to bury them, their wives, their sons and their daughters, I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. Speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing. For the virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. If I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophets and priests have gone to a land they know not. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, and the guilt of our ancestors. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonour your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. Verse 8. 
for you are the one who does all this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it good to be God's people together to worship his holy name, to hear from his word, even if it's a difficult word. In uh, chapter 14, uh, some not straightforward things here, isn't there? It might help to have it open for you, uh, uh, page 769, Jeremiah, is what we're going to get into this morning. I want to start by asking you, is it easier to perceive spiritual reality in the good times or the bad times? I think intuition would say surely the good times. You would think that when people are doing well financially, when they're progressing in their careers, when their investments are steadily growing, the children are doing well at school, they're enjoying good holidays... You think people would want to break out in praise to God and say, thank you, Lord, for your abundance. Thank you for your wonderful creation and all you've provided for us. However, more often than not, prosperity doesn't evoke worship of God. What it does is distract people from God. And people stop giving God his rightful place. People start worshipping created things rather than the creator himself. And that's the definition of idolatry. We think of idolatry in Old Testament terms, you know, where people carve things out of wood and stone, and we think, well, that was a bit ridiculous. But it did have a good intent. Uh, People thought that that is what would produce the rain that would give them the crops and the big harvest. They thought this is what would give them good luck in their lives, in every area of their lives. Today's idols, though, are the material goodies, those things that we think will give our life meaning. We buy them, they give us a good feeling for a time, but they can't give us that sense of purpose in life that only following Jesus can give in the end. Over time, the pleasure fades, then the new model comes out and it's got all these great new features in it for my phone, in my car or in the house and life can be exciting again. You see, our hearts are like broken cisterns. Linda talked about those last week in Chapter 2, didn't she? The broken cisterns. We're looking for living water to refresh our hearts but our hearts go after these idols thinking they will satisfy. Our idolatrous hearts are like broken cisterns. And the satisfaction, you see, leaks away very quickly and our souls remain dry and parched. John Dixon tells this little story, which I think illustrates it well. He says, At Christmas time, my wife Buff and I were invited to a rather posh party, sailing on a boat, enjoying beautiful food, wine and company, all while we watched the sun go down over the beautiful waters of Pitwater in Sydney, where I live. It was gorgeous. I met a friend of Buff's that night who, in the course of conversation, told me how well things were going for her. Her husband had just received a promotion, so they were financially free. They'd recently settled in a nice home on the northern beaches of Sydney, so life was secure. The kids were all now at school, so she could finally begin to enjoy more leisure time. Then she paused. 
and out of nowhere began pensively to say, but you know, sometimes I really wonder if I'm meant to be experiencing more. You know, some sort of larger spiritual dimension to life. My eyes began to light up at the fascinating turn in the conversation. And perhaps she noticed, because as abruptly as she had brung it up, she stopped. Oh, she said, but of course, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not really that interested in it. And within a matter of seconds, we were back to talking about the wine and the pate and all the other wonderful distractions around us that night. For me, this is a classic insight into Western spirituality. You might call it a spirituality of distraction. It's not that we don't think about the great things, it's just that we find the distraction of the lesser things easier to handle. Three out of four of us believe in the existence of God and the reality of the afterlife, according to the research, but you'd never know it just listening to the conversations at work or in the pub or to the public discourse in the media. We have this extraordinary ability to think big but live small. This way of thinking big and living living small is idolatry. You see, people know there's a creator out there. This marvellous creation shouts out again and again, there is a creator. But people only want the immediate pleasures the creation can give them. And so people turn their backs on our loving creator who has provided so abundantly. And this is the big sin that Jeremiah uh, regularly throughout his book addresses, the sin of idolatry. I want us to recap for a minute uh, what we've learned so far in the book of Jeremiah about idolatry. Uh, If you go back to chapter 1 in our first week, that was the call of Jeremiah. And at his call, Jeremiah's told the message that he's going to have to give the people. Chapter 1, verse 16, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods and in worshipping what their hands have made. That sounds to me like idolatry, doesn't it? Idolatry. Chapter 2, our second week, the history of Israel is recalled in terms of a love story and having a first love. So chapter 2, verse 2, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. But then the people rebelled. So in verse 5, the Lord says, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Once again, the problem of idolatry. And now we come to week three. And uh, if you go to the end of our reading this morning to verse 22, we find Jeremiah pleading with God on behalf of the people. He acknowledges the sin of the people and the impotence of their idols. But then at the end, he says this, he says, Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves bring down showers? No, it is you, Lord our God. Therefore our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. It's all about idolatry. What is the worst sin? If you went out into the streets and talked to people, 
What would they say? Probably would be something like murder, wouldn't it? Or horrific sins like that. But what do we find when we look at the Bible? As we read the prophets. What's the most horrific sin? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's the breaking of the first two commandments. Because the breaking of those leads to all the other sins and the need for all the other commandments. That's the horrific sin. We need our spiritual eyes open to see how horrible it is to reject the wonderful, almighty, holy, creator God. And so we come to the heart of this chapter, which is verses 11 and 12. And this shocking pronouncement. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine and plague. Does that sound a bit harsh? Is this sort of passage people are thinking about when they talk about that horrible judgmental God of the Old Testament, but you know, we've now come into the New Testament and the God of love? Why doesn't God allow Jeremiah to at least pray for the people that they might have another chance to repent and avoid judgment? Well, the truth is, of course, that God has already given them many, many chances. For over a century now, he's been sending them prophets, pointing them back to the covenant with Moses and calling on them to repent and renew the covenant. And there were sort of little waves of interest, but... Overall, the prophets were persecuted, cast out, and their message, sorry, not for us. And the people have gone their merry way. In this present time of Jeremiah, God has been giving them warnings. Uh, Verses 1 to 6 of this chapter, uh, which we didn't read, but they tell of this horrible drought that was meant to be a wake-up call. If you look at verse 3 there, it says, They go to the cisterns but find no water. Verse 4, the ground is cracked and the farmers are in dismay. Verse 5, the doe deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Verse 6, the wild donkeys pant like jackals and their eyes fail for lack of food. It's pretty obvious there's a severe drought happening here. Yet the people do not turn back to God, do not throw themselves on God. They continue in their apostasy. And so God now is saying no more. No more. The time for mercy is over. Let the judgment fall. I tried to think of uh, an analogy that might capture this for us. And uh, I wonder if it's a bit like a very sad family situation where a son has gone astray. He's rebelled against his parents and disappointed them in so many ways. He's guilty of break and enters, stealing thousands of dollars worth of goods. He's broken into cars, taking them for joyrides. He's been living a reckless life, enjoying parties, getting high on drugs. And he's been picked up by the police a number of times and come before the courts. But his parents hire the best QC available. And so he gets off with a fine rather than going to jail. And then the parents pay the fine. 
And it gets to a point where the parents say, no more. No more paying the fines. No more bailing you out. You have to face the full consequences of your wrongdoing. That's all that's left to us. And that's the point that God's come to with his stubborn people. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that sometimes people read a passage like this and they think, well, that's the harsh God of the Old Testament, but we know the loving God in Jesus in the New Testament. He wouldn't judge anyone, would he? Would he? Well, the truth is that Jesus has just as much to say about judgment as Yahweh in the Old Testament. Let me give you just two examples. There's the parable of the ten virgins. Five were prepared and had oil for their lamps and five were unprepared. When the bridegroom arrives, uh, the five with the oil enter the marriage feast, but the five without the oil are locked out. And when they appeal to be let in, what does the bridegroom answer? He says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. That's chilling, those words, isn't it? It's from Jesus. There's a story of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. The rich man leads a self-indulgent lifestyle and ignores the needs of the poor man at his gate. Judgment day comes and he is cast into hell and Lazarus, the poor man, is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man appeals to Abraham to cross over to join Lazarus in that paradise. But Abraham explains there is a great chasm over which no one may cross. Again, chilling words. My friends, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is one and the same. The Bible is all one story from the beginning of creation in Genesis through to the consummation in Revelation. And the Bible story is that there is one creator, redeemer, God, who reigns over all, but people reject his reign and instead turn to idols. And it's absolutely tragic. Let's look a little more closely at how idolatry plays out in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 7 there. Jeremiah confesses sin on behalf of the nation. He says, our sins testify against us. We have often rebelled. We've sinned against you. But what is his appeal to God, having admitted the sin? What does the modern person appeal to God once they realise they've sinned? I suspect the modern, and, and look, I'll include myself in this from time to time, uh, we think, well, it's not as bad as the person over there. God, you should see what my neighbours are up to or, or what they said at work the other week, you know? And we try and justify ourselves. But how, what does uh, Jeremiah do? He says this, he says, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. People, the people are only concerned for their own convenience. Jeremiah is concerned for the glory of God's name. And I think, Jeremiah, it would be a case of whether it's in salvation or judgment, Lord, glorify your name. That's the prophet's heart's concern. This is what it means to keep the first commandment and love God above all else. This is what it means to reject idolatry and worship only God. Now, holding God in such high regard doesn't mean you can't question God. 
Jeremiah's full of questions about the apparent absence and indifference of God. Look at verse 8. He says, he is like a stranger in the land, like a traveller who stays only a night. You get a glimpse, but then he seems to be gone. Verse 9, he's like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save. And then Jeremiah tries to make excuses for the people by blaming the false prophets in verse 13. He says it's because of these false prophets. They keep telling them that there's going to be peace and prosperity and they're believing them. Well, God says the false prophets will be the first to be judged, but so will the people. They've chosen to listen to preachers who simply tell them what they want to hear, confirming them in their idolatry. Jeremiah's heart is for God. Jeremiah's heart is for the people. And uh, in the last part of the chapter, that is very clear. Look at verse 17. His eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing for the spiritual plight the nation's in. Verse 19. Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? He's concerned for the people. Verse 21. Remember your covenant with us. Do not break it. For the sake of your name, Lord, and for the covenant. Do not break it. So Jeremiah loves the people dearly. He is cut to the quick about the judgment that's coming. But Jeremiah also loves God dearly and rejects all idolatry. He's concerned for the holiness of God's name and that only God should be worshipped. So my friends, how might we apply this? Well, do you have the heart of the prophet? Do you have the heart of the prophet? Do you love God above all else? Do you reject idols? Do you weep over the spiritual indifference of people caught up in their idolatry? Will you intercede for the idolatrous people who are heading for judgment? Intercede as the prophet does. Do you have a heart to win them back to God? There are many ways we could do this. I mean, it may be that uh, you give someone the book of Jeremiah and say, have a read of this. <laughs> I have to say that's when a person's been inquiring about the Christian faith, that's not the first place in the Bible I point them to normally. But it may just be what a particular person needs. And God's going to speak to them and pull them up in their tracks and they're going to go, wow, I've, I've got to repent. I've got to go a new direction. God's word does that in people's hearts. Another opportunity that's open before us at the moment is Alpha. Alpha is about prayer and invitation. Praying for those people we know who are far away from God, caught up with their idols. Inviting them to come to an information night and then doing some more praying and seeing what God might do. One prayer that anybody can pray is there in verse 7. Do you see that? Do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. After you've invited someone to Alpha, pray. Do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. Jeremiah prayed on behalf of his wayward people. Jeremiah invited them to repent and believe. Pray and invite. That is the heart of Jeremiah. Will you make it your heart as well?